We are continuing in our Old Covenant series tonight and continuing our exploration of the Old Covenant civil law. That is, the laws which govern the Old, Co- the Old Covenant Israel as a nation state. We've already seen that there is a category of civil law which simply manages sin. This type of civil law doesn't condone sin. It's not God saying that sin is okay. But this type of civil law is realistic, that sin will happen. And so it provides a paradigm of punishment for sins which ought not to, but realistically will happen in Old Covenant Israel. For example, laws delimiting and punishing the inhumane treatment of slaves, as we discussed a few weeks ago. In tonight's passage, Exodus 22, 21-27, we see an example of two other kinds of civil law. God commanding justice and God commanding mercy. Both of these ways of relating to one another are condoned and commanded by God. We are to relate to one another justly, And we are to relate to one another mercifully. Or I should say, before I bring it across to modern day, Old Covenant Israel was to relate one to another. Old Covenant Israelites were to relate one to another justly and to one to another mercifully. By way of general equity, of course, it does apply to us, which we will come to. We've explored the distinction between justice and mercy already, so I won't belabor the point. But by way of reminder, justice is what someone else may rightfully demand of us. It is what we owe them. Mercy, on the other hand, is not what is owed, but it is what goes beyond justice to being more than what is owed. R.C. Sproul has a helpful teaching on this matter. And for any of you who have seen YouTube videos or Ligonier videos of R.C. Sproul teaching in the classroom setting, you know that he always uses the chalkboard. And he likes to walk around with no notes, teaching more clearly and more uh, compellingly than I can do or almost anyone could do. Tremendously gifted, quoting to you Latin phrases and walking back and forth and scribbling things on the chalkboard. And so I need you to imagine a chalkboard. And I need you to imagine simply a circle with a smaller circle inside of it. The smaller circle inside of it is what we might call justice. Outside of that smaller circle is what we might call non-justice. And Sproul distinguishes between two types of non-justice. There is injustice, which is never permissible. We may not ever do injustice. That's one type of non-justice. But the other type of non-justice is mercy. Mercy is not the same thing as justice. Mercy is not a subset of justice. Mercy is something else. Mercy is non-justice. But it's not 
injustice. And so we could, we could draw a line dividing that outer circle into two semicircles. And so there's justice, which is the inner circle. And then maybe let's say the top half, the top semicircle of that outer circle might be injustice. And the bottom half of the outer circle would be mercy. Mercy is neither justice nor is mercy injustice. Mercy is a type of non-justice, something else entirely. So injustice is never permissible. We are never in God's eyes allowed to be unjust in our dealings with someone else. If we owe them X, we are not permitted to say, well, I'm not going to give you X. That's never permissible in God's eyes. In some situations, as in the legal system of Old Covenant Israel, injustice, or pardon me, Injustice is also not permitted in the legal system of Old Covenant Israel. But in the legal system of Old Covenant Israel, mercy is also prohibited. You shall not acquit the guilty. However, in personal dealings, when it's a matter of my relationship to you or your relationship to me, mercy is always an appropriate option. Justice is good, so is mercy. Injustice is never okay. But we may show non-justice to others in our personal dealings with them by showing them mercy. And though another human being cannot demand mercy of us, God may demand mercy of us. And that's exactly what He does with His people. In both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, God expects us to always be just, never to be unjust. But God also commands us to seek to be merciful whenever it's possible and prudent. As the prophet said so many years after the giving of the Old Covenant, what does the Lord require of thee? To do justice and to love mercy. If you love something, you try to get as much of it or give as much of it as possible. If you love pizza, for example, you try to eat as much of it as possible. If you really, really love pizza... You try to get other people to eat it as much as possible. We've all had that friend. Hey, here, have one. No, thanks. I'm good. No, no, really. Have one. No, I really am okay. Oh, come on. It's so good. <laughs> when we love something, we don't try to go easy on it. We don't try to be sparing with our consumption of it or our dispensing of it. When we love something, we want as much of it as possible and we want others of it others to have as much of it as possible. And so we are always to do justice, but we are to love mercy. We are to seek then to live as merciful people, receiving mercy and giving mercy and loving that lifestyle. As those who have been shown mercy by God, we, God's people, 
ought to be merciful ourselves. So there are three types of civil law that we have covered so far in our series. One is simply the regulation of sin, like the laws for against beating your slaves, which we discussed a few weeks ago. God doesn't condone the inhumane treatment of slaves, but he recognizes that people will treat their slaves inhumanely, and so he regulates it and says that this is the limitations around what you may and may not do when punishing your slaves, and this is the penalty for the breach of these things. Tonight's message is focused on two other types of civil law. Things that God does condone, things that God does command. God's commands to be just and God's commands to be merciful. Let's start with God's commands to be just. I think by this point in our series, we've covered this sufficiently. So I won't belabor the point. Just spend a couple minutes here. But suffice it to say that the Lord is concerned that we do no injustice to one another. In his book, Generous Justice, which uh, was cited in Tony Morita's commentary on Exodus, Tim Keller points out that God is a God of justice. When people ask me, how do you want to be introduced, Keller writes, I usually propose that they say, this is Tim Keller, minister of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Of course, I am many other things. But that is the main thing I spend my time doing in public life. Realize then how significant it is that the biblical writers introduce God as a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows. Psalm 68, 4 and 5. This is one of the main things he does in the world. Keller writes, he identifies with the powerless. He takes up their cause. Also here in our passage, the same emphasis is present. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, though, not a big deal. Right? Go, just look with me. That's uh, verse 23. If you do mistreat any widow or fatherless child and they cry out to me, what does God say? I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. How seriously does God take justice? Is God concerned about justice? Yes, He is. God is very concerned. He doesn't simply say, I will designate someone to hear your case. He says, I will take it up with you. I will kill you. God is very serious about justice in the theocratic nation state of Israel where He was directly involved in the day-to-day affairs of the nation. The same emphasis as in Keller's book is present here in our text. God himself says that he himself will hear the cries of the vulnerable who cry out to him. And God himself will mete out justice. 
Though justice may not prevail in the here and now, we've all seen cases where it hasn't. We talked even last Sunday night about cases where justice has not prevailed. We think, for example, of the race relations in the U.S., and I dealt with this at length in our sermon series last week. Impartiality doesn't mean that the police are always wrong, but impartiality also does not mean that the police are always right. And most certainly there has been injustice at times and in places. There has been racism at times and in places. And justice has not always prevailed. But mark my words, justice will one day prevail. God says, I will kill you. I will make things right. So men may escape justice in this life but there is a reckoning and God will hold every perpetrator of injustice to account when all is said and done nobody escapes God's courtroom and God's courtroom doesn't have a good old boy sitting in the judge's seat God's courtroom does not have a bought and paid for jury that renders a predetermined verdict. God is judge, jury, and as he says here, executioner. And God's courtroom deals in justice. Deals in justice for the sake of clarity. God's courtroom never deals out injustice. Justice will be one of the hallmarks of Christ's coming kingdom. In Psalm 72, we see a kingdom described which had some reference to Solomon's reign, but a more ultimate reference to the coming reign of Christ Jesus. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush, crush the oppressor. Crush the oppressor. Solomon did that in some measure. He was the most immediate referent. But the kings of Israel were types and shadows of the coming King Jesus, who is the embodiment of all the ideals of a king over God's people. And in verse 4 we read, May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Yes, Jesus will. May he give deliverance to the children of the needy. Yes, Jesus will. May he crush the oppressor. Yes, Jesus will. And in verses 12 to 14, For He delivers the needy when He calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, He redeems their life. And precious is their blood in His sight. Jesus will 
deliver the needy when He calls. Jesus will deliver the poor and Him who has no helper. Jesus will have pity on the weak and the needy. Jesus will save the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, Jesus will redeem their life. And precious is their blood in Jesus' sight. When we read a description of Christ's coming kingdom, there are many aspects of it, but justice is one of them. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. And you know how much injustice will happen under the sun when Jesus reigns? None. Jesus will establish justice. As far as His kingdom extends. And this is a glorious hope. In the meantime, we are called to do justice. Let's look now at God's commands to be merciful. Both in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant, we are commanded to be merciful. Look here in Exodus 22. For one example, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Here, the injunction is against charging interest to a poor person. Elsewhere in the Old Covenant, you're actually, it's actually stated that you're not allowed to charge interest to any of your countrymen. But you are allowed to charge interest to a foreigner. Which means that it's not unjust to charge interest. If it was, God would never say you can charge interest to a foreigner. But you're to have mercy on your countrymen and not charge them interest. It goes on. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? So you could justly charge someone interest. But when you sit down to negotiate with one of your countrymen, especially as is in view particularly here, one who is poor, and he says, well, how much interest will I have to charge you? You're to say, don't worry about that. Just repay me the principal. And when he says, okay, well, let me give you my cloak and pledge. You could either say, no, 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 keep it. Or I'll say, yeah, sure, I'll take it, but come back before the sun goes down and get it back from me. Do you see here that mercy is commanded? There's nothing wrong with taking some collateral in pledge for a debt. The banks do it all the time, of course, right? If you take out a mortgage, it's held against your house. Right? If you have a credit card, you probably have to show some assets or a bank balance or something like this, um, which is held against the loan that the bank gives you. We do the same sometimes in our personal dealings. A uh, institution like, for example, maybe like courts or something, you take out a loan to buy a piece of furniture or some technology, and you at least have to give a copy of your driver's license or something like this. 
because there, there needs to be some recourse, some pledge, some assurance that you're not just going to run away with their money. It's just. There's nothing unjust about it. But God says, if somebody's so poor that all he can give you is something to keep him warm for the night, don't hold it. Let the man sleep in his cloak, even if it means you have nothing held in pledge. Be merciful. So here in the Old Covenant, we see commands to be merciful. We'll talk about a a few more in a minute. But let me show you that this is across the board and also in the New Covenant. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, we read this. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Justice? Yes. Pay the debt. Or in those days, you couldn't just declare bankruptcy. And being sold into servitude was a just and normal recourse for the insolvent debtor. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. This would be, by the way, like a day laborer saying, just, just, just be patient. I will get that two million to you in time. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Mercy. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seeing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, should, listen here, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In other words, it's an obligation. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. In both Old Testament and New, God commands his people to be merciful. Back to the Old Testament now, there are several additional commands in addition to what is mentioned here in Exodus 22. Several additional commands to be merciful enshrined in God's civil law. For example, Leviticus 23:22. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. 
I am the Lord your God. So if you own one acre and you plow one acre and you plant one acre, how much should you reap? Less than one acre. This is, this is God's way for His old covenant people, Israel. Plow one acre, plant one acre, reap less than one acre. Leave some at the edges of your field for the sojourner. Be merciful. Or if among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cries to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So you see here, if someone else doesn't have enough money, but you have enough money, God says, help him out. Is it his money or is it your money? It's your money. But what does God say? You give it to him. Can he come and say, give me some of your money. I need it. I demand it. No. Because this is not an issue of justice. This is an issue of mercy. But can God, who created you, who formed you, who redeemed you, require you to treat others in the same way that you have been treated? Yes. That's his prerogative. And he says that you need to factor in mercy to your decision making. If you can't loan at interest, in other words, if you can't charge anyone interest on what you lend to them, what's the motivation to lend? Why would you even bother? If you can't take security from someone to secure their loan, why would you put yourself at risk? Mercy. Mercy. We need to factor mercy in to our decision making. This is what God wants from us in both the Old Testament and in the New. I met a non-Christian this past week, or I spoke to a non-Christian this past week who I've known for longer than that but I spoke to her this week and she told me that she always carries extra money when she goes to Price Mart you know why? not because she might see some things that she wants to buy on impulse but because she knows that there's always people looking for money in the car park of Price Mart whatever you think about the strategy of giving money to the people in the car part of price money. I was impressed with her forethought, her planning, her intentionality, her compassion, and her mercy. 
she carries extra $5 bills in her wallet when she goes to Price Mart so that she will have something to give. I was impressed with that. Now, she's not doing it because God in Christ has been merciful to her. But if even a non-Christian could be compassionate and merciful on the less fortunate in our society, how much more ought we who have been shown great grace by God in the giving of His Son for us, how much more ought we to factor in mercy, to factor in compassion into our decision-making. The gospel logic is that you were a slave in Egypt and God owed you nothing. God didn't have to go in there and rescue you. But you cried out and God heard your cries for mercy and God was merciful to you. Therefore, when you see in your nation somebody who needs mercy, you should think to yourself, I am a recipient of mercy. Someone has been merciful to me. I should do unto others as I wanted God to do unto me and as God did unto me and I should be merciful to him or to her. Gospel logic is this, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I had no hope, as we sing sometimes, that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you sin. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with God. Or pardon me, together with Christ. And seated us with him in the heavenly places. By grace, you have been saved. Therefore, when you see someone who has no claim on you, who has no claim on your mercy, but is in need, who cannot rightfully demand it of you, but has a need nonetheless, you as a recipient of mercy should factor mercy into your decision making with respect to how you treat this person. A couple of ways that this could play out. One would be, of course, financially in thinking about charity and benevolence, giving. Maybe we could strategically think through how we can help. I'm not necessarily advocating and mentioning the aforementioned example. I'm not necessarily advocating indiscriminate handouts to the poor. Discussion may be had on whether or not that is the most effective strategy. But we ought to think about how can we be merciful to those who are in need. We ought to factor that in. So some strategic thinking, some planning, and some action with respect to mercy towards our fellow man. Another way could be in relationships, as in the context of Matthew 18, which I read earlier, 
where Peter says, look, how many times do I got to keep forgiving someone? It's just, you realize, to just walk away. Stop forgiving. Hold someone to account for their actions and deal justly with them by treating them as their sins deserve. How many times do I got to show mercy? Jesus teaches us there that God has forgiven you a debt you never could have paid. Like a day laborer trying to pay off two million or something. Therefore, who are you to quibble and quarrel with your neighbor over a hundred dollars? Relationally, it's like that. God forgave us a relational debt when we had sinned against Him. That is far greater than any relational debt that someone else could incur to us when they sin against us. If God has forgiven us, we also ought to be a forgiving people. We have to deal in mercy. The gospel logic is that in addition to being just, which obviously is always required of us. We can never be unjust because God is holy and God is concerned about justice. Gospel logic is that in addition to making sure that we never act unjustly, it's not enough to simply just always be just, to merely always be just. We have to be a merciful people. It was that way in the Old Covenant and it's that way in the New Covenant. Because of all that God has done for us in Christ. Because God sent His Son into the world to seek and to save the lost. To hang upon that tree bearing our curse. Because God was reconciled to us through the death of His Son. Because He forgave our trespasses against Him. Because He provided for us what we could not provide for ourselves. Out of His riches when we were poor, we also ought to go into the world and be merciful people. We ought not to quibble and quarrel about what exactly is just and equitable in any and every situation. We ought to generously dispense mercy. We ought not to always be looking at the contract for loopholes where we can get out of this or where we can get out of that, where we can give as little as possible. We ought not always to be looking at our mere legal obligations. The, we ought not to be dealing in our interpersonal relationships with what's, what's the little, littlest that I can justly do for this person. At what point does injustice start? Well, I'm going to do as little as possible while remaining below that threshold. We ought to be people who never do injustice, but who regularly do that kind of non-justice, which Sproul talked about, which is pleasing to the Lord. Mercy. As the prophet Micah said, do justice, love, mercy. This is the kind of people that God wanted His old covenant people to be, and this is the kind of people that God wants His new covenant people to be.
in response, we're going to sing, Jesus, keep me near the cross. And this is really the thrust of this idea that we ought to live our lives near the cross with its shadow or us and treat people accordingly.